Chapter Five of the Second Latchkey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Second Latchkey, by Charles Norris and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Five, The Second Latchkey. Without another word, Smith opened the door and sprang out. As Annesley put her hand into his to descend, she gave him the latchkey. It had been inside the neck of her dress, and the metal was warm from the warmth of her heart. "'Take this,' she whispered. "'If they are watching, it will be best for you to have the key.' Mr. Smith bestowed a generous tip on the driver, and was rewarded with a loud, cheerful, "'Thank you, sir,' which must have reached the ears of a chauffeur in the act of stopping before a house nearby. Annesley, glancing sidewise at the other taxi, thought that it drew up with a suspicious suddenness, as if it had awaited a cue. There was little doubt in her mind as to who the occupants were, and her heart beat fast, though she controlled herself to walk with calmness across the strip of pavement. On the doorstep she turned to wait for her companion, and without seeming to look past him saw that no one got out from the neighboring taxi. "'They don't care whether we guess who they are or not,' was her thought. "'They mean to find out whether we have a latch-key and can let ourselves into a house in this square. When they see us go in, will they believe the story and drive away, or will they stay on?' What would happen if the watchers persisted, Annesley dared not think, but she knew that she would sacrifice herself in any way, rather than send the man she loved—yes, she did love him—out to face peril. Having paid the chauffeur, Mr. N. Smith joined the figure on the doorstep, and fitted into the lock Annesley's latch-key. Then he opened the door for the girl, and followed her in with a cool air of proprietorship which ought to have impressed the watchers. A minute later, if another proof had been needed that Mr. and Mrs. Smith were actually at home, it was given by a sudden glow of red curtains in the two front rooms on the ground floor. This touch of realism meant extra risk for Annesley in case Mrs. Ellsworth were awake, but she took it with scarcely a qualm of fear. The house was quiet, and there were ten chances to one against its mistress being on the alert at this hour, so long past her bedtime. When the girl had switched on the lights of the two-branched chandelier over the dining-table, she beckoned to her companion, who noiselessly followed her from the dark corridor into the room. There, with one sweeping glance at the dull red walls, the oil-painted landscapes in sprawling gilt frames, the heavy plush curtains, the furniture with its saddle-bag upholstery, the common Turkish carpet, and the mantel-mirror with tasteless tasseled draperies, Nelson Smith seemed to comprehend the deadly stuffiness of Annesley Grail's existence. The look of Mrs. Ellsworth's middle-class dining-room, and the atmosphere whence oxygen had been excluded, were enough to tell him, if he had not realized already, why the lady's companion had gone out to meet a strange man with a view to marriage. To Annesley, however, for the first time, this room was neither hideous nor depressing. It seemed years since she had seen it. She was a different girl from the spiritless slave who had crept out after luncheon in the wake of her mistress, that short, shapeless form with a large head set on a short neck, and a trailing, old-fashioned dress of black. Now, with a man holding her hands and calling her an angel, a dear, brave angel, it looked to the girl a beautiful room. There was a glamour upon it, and upon the rest of the world. Surely life could never seem commonplace again. Shh! 
Annesley whispered. "'We mustn't wake Mrs. Ellsworth, or she'll run to the front door in her dressing-gown and call police. She's old, but her ears are as sharp as a cat's. She can almost hear one thinking. But I'm glad she can't quite. How frightful if she could!' "'Nothing about her need be frightful to you any more,' said the man. "'You have saved me. Soon it will be my turn to rescue you.' "'I haven't saved you yet,' the girl reminded him. "'They are sure to be waiting to see whether you come out. "'But I've thought of one more thing to make them believe that you live here. "'I can steal softly upstairs to the front room on the second floor, "'above the drawing-room, the one we call Mr. Smith's, "'to turn on the lights, and then those hateful creatures will think—' "'She hesitated, and the color sprang to her cheeks. "'That Mr. and Mrs. Nelson Smith have gone to their room,' the man finished her sentence. His eyes beamed love and gratitude, a glorious reward. "'You're wonderful. You forget nothing that can help. Do you know, your trust, your faith in me, in spite of appearances, are the best things that have come into my life? You call those fellows hateful creatures because they're my enemies. Yet for all you know they may be injured innocents, and I the hateful one. This may be my way of getting into a rich old woman's house to steal her jewels and money, making you a cat's paw. Don't, Annesley cut him short. I can't bear to hear you say such things. I trust you because surely a woman can tell by instinct which men to trust. I don't need proof. By Jove, he exclaimed, his eyes fixed upon her face. You are the kind of girl whose faith could turn Lucifer back from devil into archangel. I— you're a million times too good for me. I didn't even want to meet a white saint like you. But now I have met you. Nothing on earth is going to make me give you up, if you'll stand by me. I'm unworthy, and I don't expect to be much better. But there's one thing. I can give you a gayer life than here. Perhaps I can even make you happy, if you don't ask for a saint to match yourself. You shall have my love and worship, and I'll be as true as steel. Oh, listen, Annesley broke in. Don't you hear a sound? Yes, he said. A door creaked somewhere. Mrs. Ellsworth's bedroom door. What shall we do? There's just the sort passage at back, and then she'll be at the baize door that opens into the front corridor. Quick! You, not I, must go upstairs, to that second-floor front room I spoke of. Hurry, before she gets to the swing door. Without a word he obeyed, remembering his hat, which he had laid on the table. One step took him out of the lighted dining-room into the dimness beyond. Another step, and he was on the stairs. There, for the moment at least, he was safe from detection, for the staircase faced the front door, and Mrs. Ellsworth must approach from the back. She would come to the door of the dining-room, and, expecting only the girl, would not think of spying at the foot of the stairs. Besides, there was no light in the corridor except that which streamed through the reddish globes of the chandelier above the dining-table. If only the man did not stumble on his way up, the situation might be saved. He was alert, deft, quick-witted, and light of foot as a panther. Who but he would have remembered at such a moment to snatch up a compromising hat and take it with him? Annesley stood still, rigid in every muscle, fighting to control her heart-throbs, that she might be ready to answer a flood of questions. She dared not even let her thoughts rush ahead. It was all she could do to face the present. The rest must take care of itself. He had said that she would make a good actress. Now was the moment to prove that he had judged her truly. She began to unfasten one of her long gray gloves. A button was loose. She must give it a few stitches to-morrow. Strange that there should be room for such a thought in her mind. But she caught at it gladly. 
It calmed her as she heard a shuffling tread of slippered feet along the corridor, and she forced herself not to look up until she was conscious that a shapeless figure in a dressing-gown filled the doorway, like a badly painted portrait too large for its frame. "'A nice time of night for you to be back,' barked the bronchitic voice, hoarsened by years of shut windows. "'Give you an inch, and you take an L. I told you half-past ten. Here it is, eleven. Annesley looked up as if surprised. "'Oh, Mrs. Ellsworth, you frightened me!' she exclaimed. "'I was delayed. But it won't be eleven for ten minutes. This dining-room clock keeps such good time, you know. And I've been in the house for a few moments. I thought I came up so softly. I'm sorry I waked you up.' "'Waked me up!' repeated Mrs. Ellsworth. "'I have not been to sleep. I can never close my eyes when I know anybody is out and has got to come back, especially a creature as likely as not to leave the front door unlatched.' That's why I said half-past ten at the latest. If I don't fall asleep before eleven, I get nervous and lose my night's rest. You've heard me say that twenty times, yet you have no consideration. This is the first time I've been out late, Annesley defended herself. As she spoke, she looked at Mrs. Ellsworth as she might have looked at a stranger. This fat old woman with hard eyes, low, unintelligent forehead, and sneering yet self-indulgent mouth, had been for five years the mistress of her fate. The slave had feared to speak, lest she should say the wrong thing, had hesitated before taking the most insignificant step, knowing that Mrs. Ellsworth's sharp tongue would accuse her of foolishness or worse. But now Annesley wondered at her bondage. If only the man upstairs could escape, never again would she be afraid of this old tyrant. "'You don't need to tell me how long you have been in,' said Mrs. Ellsworth, blissfully ignorant that the iron chain was broken, and enjoying her power to wound." I've been sitting up watching the clock. My fire's nearly out, and no more coals in the scuttle, the servants all three snoring while I am kept up. If I'm in bed with a cold to-morrow, I shall have you to thank, Miss Grail. I'll get you some more coal if you want it, said Annesley. Hadn't you better go to bed, now I am back? Not till I've made you understand that this must never occur again, insisted the old woman. Annesley was shocked at herself for daring to think that the unwieldy bulk in the grey flannel dressing-gown looked like a hippopotamus. "'You don't seem to realize that you've done anything out of the way. You're as calm as if it was eight o'clock. Not a word of regret, not a question as to my evening. You're so taken up with yourself and your smart clothes, clothes I gave you.' "'I haven't had much of a chance to ask questions, have I?' Annesley ventured to remind her mistress. "'Wouldn't you tell me about your evening when you are in bed and I have made up your fire?' You say it is bad for you to stand. I say so because it is the truth, and doctor's orders, rapped out Mrs. Ellsworth's. I thought I had been upset enough for one evening, but this last straw had to be added to my burden. Why, what can have upset you? Annesley inquired, more for the sake of appearing interested than because she was so. But the look on her mistress's face told her that something really had happened. I don't care to be kept out of my bed to be so catechized by you, returned Mrs. Ellsworth, pleased that she had aroused curiosity and determined not to gratify it. Turn on the light in the corridor and give me your arm. My rheumatism is very bad, owing to the chill I have caught, and if I stumble I may be laid up for a week. The girl proffered a slender arm, hoping that the pounding of her heart might not be detected by Mrs. Ellsworth's hand. She wished that she could have slipped it under her right arm instead of the left, but owing to Mrs. Ellsworth's position in the doorway it was impossible to do so, except by pushing her aside. She rejoiced, however, in the order to put on the light in the corridor, 
for this meant that after settling her mistress in bed, and transferring the dining-room coal-scuttle to the bedroom, she must return to switch the electricity off. Then, with Mrs. Ellsworth out of the way, she could help the man upstairs to escape, if the watchers had abandoned the game. The tyrant, shuffling along in heedless woolen slippers, made the most of her infirmity, and hung on the arm of her tall companion. In silence they passed through the baize door at the end of the corridor, so into the addition at the back of the house, which contained Mrs. Ellsworth's room and a bath, with another small room suitable for a maid, and occupied by Annesley. This addition had been built a year or two before Annesley's arrival, and saved Mrs. Ellsworth the necessity of mounting and descending the stairs, as she used the dining-room to sit in, and seldom went into the drawing-room on the floor above. Annesley was not surprised to see that the fire in her mistress's room was still a bank of glowing coals, for one of Mrs. Ellsworth's pleasures was to represent herself in the light of a martyr. The girl made no remark, however, she was far too experienced for such mistakes intact. Still in silence she peeled the stout figure out of its dressing-gown and helped it into a short, knitted bed-jacket. "'When you get the dining-room scuttle, put out the light there and in the corridor,' Mrs. Ellsworth said. If you leave this door open, you can see your way with the coals. No use your creaking back and forth, just as I've settled down to rest. Besides, there's somebody else to think of. I hope he hasn't been disturbed already. Somebody else? echoed the girl, with a gasp. There was no longer any fear that her curiosity had not caught fire. Mrs. Ellsworth was satisfied. Yes, somebody else, she condescended to repeat. A certain person has come since you went out. I suppose, in the circumstances, you do not need to be told who. I—I I don't know what you mean by in the circumstances, Annesley stammered. That's not intelligent of you, considering where you have spent the evening, sneered Mrs. Ellsworth. Annesley's ears tingled as if they had been boxed. Could it be that Mrs. Ellsworth knew of the trick played on her? Knew that her companion had not been to the Smiths? I'm afraid I don't understand, she deprecated. Mrs. Ellsworth sat in bed staring up at her. "'Either you are a fool,' she said, "'or else I have caught you or him in a lie. "'I don't know which yet, but I soon shall. "'Perhaps you were not the only person in this house "'who went out to-night with a latch-key. "'Now do you guess?' "'No, I don't,' the girl had to answer, "'though a dreadful idea was whirring an alarm in her brain. "'I dare say he is back before this, "'being more considerate of my feelings than you, "'and less noisy.' went on the old woman, anxious to prove that Annesley Grail and nobody else was responsible for keeping her from rest. Anyhow, what a man does is not my business. What you do is. Now, did or did not a certain person walk in and surprise you at the archdeacon's? Don't stand there blinking like an owl. Speak out, yes or no. No, Annesley breathed. Then you haven't been to the Smiths. I can more easily believe you are lying than he. Hark, there he comes. Isn't that a latch-key in the front door? It sounds like it, but perhaps it's a mouse in the wall. Mice make such strange noises. They're not making this one. He never could manage that key properly. Nobody with ears could mistake the sound, with both my door and the baize door open between, as they are now. No, you aren't to run and let him in. I don't want him to think we spy on him. He's free to come and go as he pleases, but I wish he wasn't so fond of surprises. It's not fair to me at my time of life. As I was sitting down to dinner, he walked in. Of course I had to ask him to dine, though there wasn't enough food for two. 
However, he refused, saying he would drop in at the archdeacon's. "'Mr. Smith has come!' Annesley cried out, wildly, interrupting her mistress for the first time in all their years together. "'Oh, he will go upstairs. I must stop him. I mean, speak to him. I—' "'You will do nothing of the kind,' Mrs. Ellsworth leaned out of bed and seized the girl's dress. Careless of any consequence save one, Annesley struggled to free herself. But the old hand, with its lumpy knuckles, was strong in spite of fat and rheumatism. It clung leech-like to chiffon of cloak and gown, and though Annesley tore at the yellow fingers, she could not loosen them. Desperate, she cried out in a choked voice, Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith, then checked herself lest the wrong Mr. Smith should answer. But her voice was like the voice of one who tries to scream in a nightmare. It was muffled, and though the two intervening doors were ajar, the door of Mrs. Ellsworth's bedroom and the baize door dividing the corridors old and new, her call did not reach even the real Mr. Smith. To be sure, he was slightly deaf, and had to use an electric apparatus if he went to the theatre or opera. Still, Annesley hoped that her choked cry might arrest him, that he might stop and listen for it to come again, thus giving time for the man upstairs to change his quarters after the grating of the latch-key in its lock. "'Wicked, wicked girl!' Mrs. Ellsworth was shrilling. "'How dare you hurt my hand! Have you lost your senses? Out of my house you go to-morrow!' But Annesley did not hear. Her mind, her whole self, had escaped from her body and rushed out into the hall to intercept Mr. Ruthven Smith. It seemed that he must feel the influence and stop. If he did not, some terrible thing would happen, unless, indeed, the other man had heard and heeded the warning sound at the front door. What if those two met on the stairs, or in the room on the second floor? Her lover would believe that she had betrayed him. "'Mrs. Ellsworth,' she said in a fierce, low voice, utterly unlike her own, "'you must let me go, or you will regret it. I don't want to hurt you, but there's only one thing that matters. If—' The words seemed to be beaten back against her lips with a blow. From somewhere above, a sharp, dry explosion struck the girl's brain and shattered her thoughts like breaking glass.' Mrs. Ellsworth let go the chiffon cloak and dress so suddenly that Annesley almost lost her balance. The noise had dazed the girl. The world seemed full and echoing with it. She did not know what it was until she heard Mrs. Ellsworth gasp, A pistol shot! In my house! Thieves! Murder! End of chapter 5